It was a combination of lust and greed and covetousness that was out of control. My heart beat fast. I really wanted it. I couldn't live without it. It just was something that was a pleasure of this world that I had to have. It was Tommy Feckler's G.I. Joe. <laughs> this wasn't any old G.I. Joe. This was the big ones where they actually had facial hair. They mold it in plastic now. I actually tried to put G.I. Joe's boot on today and I broke his foot off. So they were better back then. I guess he's a real soldier now. But you have to understand the situation. I was eight years old and Tommy Feckler was the only child and he had everything. He had a train room that was the whole upstairs. You had to get underneath the table and crawl a whole table's length to get to the middle of it to run to the trains. I wanted those trains. <laughs> he had an allowance, unheard of. We worked for our rent and our food and our house. He could go to the store and buy baseball cards anytime he wanted. He had the life. In fact, he used to buy baseball cards just to get the bubble gum and he'd give me the cards. And he had every G.I. Joe, everyone. And he had tanks and jeeps and every piece of equipment that you can imagine. And so that day I was playing in his backyard with him and G.I. Joe was sitting there and I had to have him. So I took him. I was borrowing him. The scriptures say in the commandments, do not steal. But I was borrowing because he had many. I got home and I was playing in the backyard and my mom came out and she said, where did you get that? And I said, oh, uh, Tommy said I could borrow it. Cover up. Uh, the commandments say, do not lie. But I was covering up my previous sin. She said, why don't you take it back to him now? You've played with it long enough and uh, give it back to him. So I went back and I did what every obedient son would do. I left it on the back porch and I ran. <laughs> I didn't come home right away because I didn't want any questions, but when I got home, my mom said, did you take the G.I. Joe back? Yes. Did you give it to them? Yes. Now, I'm pretty quick on my feet at an eight-year-old, and I thought, if I gave it to Tommy, Tommy might come over and play, and she'll say something. So I said, yeah, I gave it to Mrs. Feckler. She said, uh, what did she say? She was very happy that I brought it back. <laughs> so you can see the lies are piling up. I had a good plan of cover-up because... Mrs. Feckler never came over, but Tommy did. But then Mrs. Feckler messed up my plan. She walked down the street at the same time that my mother was out in front of the house. And my mother said to her, thank you for being so kind to Chuck when he brought back the G.I. Joe. She said, what G.I. Joe? This led to consequences. Uh, 
Unfortunately, the night that it was outside, it rained, and all of G.I. Joe's joints on the inside, metal ones, that's why their feet don't break off when you put your boots on them, had all rusted. He actually looked like a soldier now. (laughs) But I ended up with a spanking. I had to replace the G.I. Joe, and a level of trust was broken down in that relationship. I'm not sure I ever played with Tommy's uh, train ever again. I was no longer welcome in the house. Now, you can see the anatomy of a temptation there. Lust, greed, covetousness, whatever you want to put in, stealing or taking for yourself, lies and scheming and cover-up. Eventually, it always comes out. Now, I made sure that my boys never had a temptation to have to steal somebody else's G.I. Joe. Uh, I bought this this week thinking it would be really fun to have this. And Ingrid said this morning, what are you doing with that G.I. Joe? And I said, I'm going to use it as a sermon illustration. She said, we have tons of them in the closet that you got for the boys. (laughs) So if anybody wants to play after the service, (laughs) you're welcome. I also got them trains when they were young. I'm not sure what all this is about, but it's a revealing of something coming over. (laughs) King David, a man after God's own heart. Hear that. A man after God's own heart. But sin rests in the hearts of even the men and women who are after God's heart. And our passage today grabs our attention. Eugene Peterson says there's two names that you always think of when you think of David. David and Goliath. David and Bathsheba. Two fields of war. One external where he counted on his God and one internal where he lost his way. And the scripture does not polish up our leaders and make them any different than they really are, but they allow us to see them because there's an invitation that if we will recognize the sin in our own heart, there's an opportunity to get free from it. Whether it's G.I. Joe or Bathsheba, to come under the steadfast love and the abundant mercy of our Lord. This message is too important to be natural in word. I just want to pray again. Holy Spirit, have freedom today to open our hearts to liberate us so that we would be people that don't live in bondage but are people that live free. Do what cannot happen in natural word, Lord. Have your way with us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. While all the kings are out at war, David was in the palace. This is the beginning problem of the whole story. 
You see, David was meant to be a warrior. That was his calling in life. This is what God was using him to do to establish the people in this time. And if you have squeamish feelings about war, as I do, you can transfer all of this to spiritual warfare in the day in which we live. We're all called to be warriors. The minute we consider ourselves on vacation, we're in a dangerous place. Because this was David's calling. In 1 Samuel 17, when he's sent by his father from caring for the sheep to bring supplies to his brothers, there's this great line. It says, David gave the supplies to the keeper of the supplies, and he ran to the battlefront. There was a warrior in him. There was a desire that God's glory overtake any problem that would be before the people. The immediate chapters before us, we've seen how this gets played out. Last week, Pastor Nathan reminded of this great covenant the Lord makes with him, and David gives thanksgiving before the Lord. Who am I and who is my family that you have done all of these things? He's recognizing the power of God. Chapter 8 through 10, celebrate the victories of David. And so that we know that David is not just this guy who's crunching through people, the scriptures give us chapter 9 where Mephibosheth, one of Saul's family who's lame, gets invited to the table to be with David. In that time in history, you should wipe out all of the other former king's family. But David brings Mephibosheth right into his own thing. David is a man of compassion. David's a man who knows God. David is a man who's experiencing success. But David is bored in the palace. Let me warn you about boredom. If you're bored in any aspect of your life, whether it's your relationships or your pursuit of God or your work or maybe an early retirement, you're in dangerous space. Because you're meant to be active. You're meant to co-create with God. You're meant to bring glory to Him by taking out the enemy who is keeping people in darkness. If there's any inkling of boredom in your life, pay attention. Because David in his boredom takes a stroll around the palace roof and he sees a beautiful woman bathing. Now, I want to say something about this. I've heard people blame Bathsheba for this account. The biblical record is making it very clear this is David's issue, not Bathsheba's issue. In the ancient world, it was very common to bathe on the top of a house. They still do it in Mali. It's part of the process when you have flat roofs and you're in places where you need to bathe in that. She's not doing something to David. David is the one who's the mover in this story. She didn't have much in it. She's powerless in the story. This is David's issue. Verses 3 through 5. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. There's a progression here. David saw, David sent and inquired. David took, and David lay with her. I call it the anatomy of temptation. 
It's a drawing. It's an inkling within us. And there's a progression that happens in our lives. Every such sin that has led to severe consequences, when I've tried to help people unravel it afterwards, you can immediately start to trace it back to little indiscretions earlier in the way. James says it this way. Matt, you want to throw this up on the, board, on the wall for us? He says this in James 1, 14 and 15, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. There's a progression happening here. Uh, David becomes a narrative, a living example of Psalm 1 and how, how not to do it. Psalm 1 says it this way, Blessed is the person who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. You see the action, walking, standing, sitting. There's a progression. There, there's a part of us that says, what happened to David that brings him from chapters 7 through 10, where we see this man of God, to chapter 11, where he's falling apart? It just didn't happen overnight. We don't know if the press clippings were getting to him, you know the higher you go in leadership, the less people tell you the truth because they want to be on your side. They want your favor in that process. What's happening in David's heart? His success is beginning to take him over and he's sliding down this path. John says it this way, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life will start to make us to love the world. Now, I'm telling you this because your hearts are evil. Listen to me. Your hearts are evil. Yes, you've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Yes, He has made you new. But the truth of the matter is, Paul tells us that throughout this life, we have a foot in Adam and we have a foot in Christ. And there's a war going on for our very hearts. I have in my heart the same lust, covetousness, and desire that I had as a seven-year-old. No one taught me or took me to school to teach me how to lie like that and cover up sin. It was rooted in my heart. And I'd like to say the next year when I came to Jesus, all that went away. Yes, it got redeemed and it came underneath the blood, but I'm still in the battle for my heart. And there's a progression that happens in us. Because we're bent against God. Galatians says the inner carnal fleshly nature of who we are is at war with the Spirit. You know, it's fun preaching to people who believe because you guys know this. It's not like I have to convince you of this. You are people under the movement of the Holy Spirit and you've allowed the Word of God to speak into your lives and you get it. How at one moment you can be at your spiritual high and maybe a minute later, the evilness that comes to your heart. David's going down this route, but we need to know there's always a way out. Always a way out. 
1 Corinthians chapter 10 says this, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your own ability. But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I can never blame God. I can never blame the temptation because God gives a way out. How does God give a way out for David? Listen to these words. David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? If you go later in this book, there's a listing of the 30 mighty men who stood by David in his most difficult times. In that list is Eliam and Uriah the Hittite. Uriah has become one of my most favorite names in this world because Uriah married Linnea a month ago. (laughs) I have a warrior in the family. (laughs) He actually is a Marine. But he has all the characteristics of Uriah. His grandfather was a pastor, and his father heard him preach a message on Uriah and his loyalty and said, someday I'm going to name a son Uriah. You're getting the picture? Eliam was older than David, like his father. Bathsheba was his daughter. Sin is sin. But sin against the people that have been most loyal to us is very hard to stomach. When the news comes to David, it's like the Lord saying, David, don't go there. If there was anybody who knew loyalty, it was David. He understood it. He was loyal to a king who's trying to kill him. God's giving him a way out. And David goes through with it. The word comes that she is pregnant and David starts his cover-up. We didn't read it this morning, but let me run you through the details. He sends out to the front to Joab and says, send Uriah back to me. He has a conversation with Uriah. I can imagine Uriah as a soldier is wondering, what in the world is this about? David's asking things. How is it out on the front? Uriah's like, send me back. Finally, David says, go and wash your feet and go home. It's a euphemism to have sex with your wife. David's making it very clear this is an opportunity. But Uriah sleeps outside on the steps of the palace. And when asked why, he said, the ark of the covenant, the presence of God is out in battle. How can I have pleasure while it and my family or my friends and colleagues are out doing battle? Send me back to the front. David then wants to cover it up one more time. And so he gets him drunk, figuring this way he'll have no uh, reserve and he'll send him home. He still sleeps on the palace steps. He realizes that Uriah, like Mrs. Feckler, is not going to cooperate with his plan. So David sends Uriah to the front with with a message that's sealed to Joab, and it says, send Uriah to the front of the field and then withdraw everyone else, and Uriah is killed in battle. 
News comes from Joab that the deed has been done. David, being the honorable man that he is, takes Bathsheba to be his wife because his friend died in battle. There's a whole series. Go back and read it this afternoon. The word sent keeps coming up over and over through this passage. David sent Joab out into the battle. David sent someone to find Bathsheba. David sent to get her. Bathsheba sends nudes that he's there. There's this sending going on. And all of a sudden, there's a sending that comes back towards David. In verse 27, it says, This thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And then chapter 12 and verse 1 opens up. The Lord sent Nathan. You know the story. Nathan comes before David and says, David, there's this man in this town who has many sheep. Remember, David already had five wives and ten concubines. There's a man in this town who has many sheep and a visitor was coming into town and he didn't want to use one of his to serve in hospitality, so he took the one lamb from a family that only had that one precious lamb. David is indignant by this news and says, that man should be punished. And Nathan says these words, David, you are that man. Will you all just in the quietness of your heart right now say your name and follow with the words, you are that man or you are that woman? David's no different than any of us. It's in us from birth. We were born in sin. David's plea in Psalm 51 is a declaration of that reality. What's my so what this morning? Sin is costly. Sin is costly. It carries with it serious consequences. David introduced tyranny into his life and his reign for the very first time. This is the beginning of the unfolding of his family. You're going to hear what happens to Absalom in a few weeks. This is the tyranny that enters his inner courts. Joab knew, and I'm pretty sure Eliam knew. They weren't stupid. The news travels around the palace. David's going to be on the run real soon because of uh, what he has done. And the most telling thing is there's tyranny in his heart. Psalm 51, which is a great repentance psalm, has two lines that just rattle me every time I hear them. When I think in light of my sin, David says, "'Cast not me away from your presence.'" And take not your Holy Spirit from me.
that thought brings shudder and fear to me. That God's presence would distance or he would take his spirit from me. David Brooks has a section on sin in his book, The Road to Character. I was going to read it, but I'm out of time. You can read it this afternoon. I find it fascinating where he says we need to call sin what it is, sin. Because we'll never be honest to our own hearts. Sad thing is between writing this book and publishing it, he was unfaithful to his wife. And when he was asked by a young reporter what that was about, he said, it's the worst decision I ever made in my life, and I'm living with the consequences now. I want to remind you, you never sin alone. Now, what do you mean by that, Chuck? There's somebody partnering with you? No. The sin that you enter into has a ripple effect, even if you are not immediately found out. The consequences of sin run downhill and they do mess up yourself and your family and the church and what God wants to do. So name it. Name it. What's in the light loses any power over you. whether it's a G.I. Joe or a Bathsheba. Here's the good news. Our forgiveness was even more costly. The precious blood of Jesus was poured out better than any hyssop cleansing that we could have. He took all of our sin on himself so that we wouldn't have to bear it. And he took the shame so that we don't have to hide. David was under an old covenant that needed to be ratified over and over, but we're under a new covenant. Established by Jesus where we are able to come free. Because forgiveness received and given is always costly. So what's my now what? Come clean. Come clean. Now. I know it feels safe and it's hidden, but it's rotting. David said, my bones were wasting away. He felt it in his inner core in multiple ways. I often say, repent early and confess often. Don't allow shame to drive you into hiding. I read this quote this week. Alexander White said, the perseverance of the saints is made of, up of many new beginnings. The perseverance of the saints is made up of new, many new beginnings. 
If you've fallen into deep sin, there's hope. If your brokenness feels unmendable, Jesus is the healer. No child of God should wander aimlessly in guilt and fear because the price has been paid. And then stay in the fight. Know your Achilles heel. Every one of us has it. Know what it is and know when you are most vulnerable. Speak up at the point of temptation. Know that you are not alone. Hebrews 4, Matt, throw it up there. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You're never alone. Your Savior understands what you're going through. One of my daily new prayers for the last eight or nine months has been this. Lord, Will you help me to feel at the same level of intensity the ugliness of my sin at the point of temptation to the degree of shame that I feel after the sin? Do you follow that? Feel the ugliness of my sin at the point of temptation to the same degree of the shame that I feel after I've sinned. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Amen.